Last week on Lean Out, we heard from Canadian journalist Jen Gerson. The response from listeners was overwhelming, and you have asked for more coverage of the collapse of our media, including, of course, controversial new legislation. Bill C-18 aims to save journalism in this country, but my guest on today's program argues that it has instead, quote, accidentally pushed the news industry into the abyss. Peter Menzies is a former newspaper executive and a former vice chair of the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission. He's now a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and a frequent commentator on the Canadian media. Peter Menzies is my guest today on Lean Out. Peter, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Really nice to have you on. Canadian media is in crisis right now. Uh, We are doing a mini-series on Lean Out on this today. And so I really wanted to get you on to hear some of your thoughts on this unfolding crisis. You are a former newspaper publisher, a former vice chair of the CRTC, and a regular commentator on the media in this country. So we'll get to C18 in a moment. But to start today, can you just paint a picture for our listeners? Give us the broad strokes of the media collapse that we're witnessing right now. We're going through a period of great dis- disruption. I think people have underestimated uh, the size of this disruption. It's To me, it's analogous to uh, uh, the invention of the printing press. The World Wide Web has fundamentally changed how we communicate with each other. And uh, things such as newspapers, which had been in place for a very long time, um, you know, it's pretty much 250 years in Canada now, um, their business model just collapsed. And it didn't begin with Facebook or even with Google. It began with Craigslist and Kijiji. You know, so, you know, did Facebook kill or Google kill the newspaper industry? No, it was the internet that did in that, in that sense. So they haven't read a lot about that, right? In our newspapers, there hasn't been a lot of tracking of that. Because newspapers haven't been very good at reporting on their own dilemmas. Media generally don't do that. The broadcast media can go to the CRTC, and it's public there, what their concerns are. But newspapers have not wanted to make a big deal about the fact. It's it's sort of like not wanting to tell anybody that you're sick, right? You kind of consider it private. So we haven't been able to watch this as the years have passed. And then we had our own disruptions with the Can West purchase of all the newspapers from Hollinger, and then its collapse, and the formation of post media outside of that. And you know, there's some pretty good evidence to suggest that that ownership structure was more interested in you know earning interest on the debt than it was in investing in the newspapers. So, uh, and probably because. Most people, most sensible people looked at newspapers even 15 years ago and said, there is no future for this. <laughs> so here we are. Everybody rolled the dice on Bill C-18, hoping that that would be, you know, their salvation. They would be resurrected uh, somehow through that. And it was uh, an idea based on uh, unsupportable premise. And it is failing. And they're failing with it. 
So yeah, let's let's get into C18. I mean, you wrote recently in the Hub an article titled How the Government Accidentally Pushed the News Media into the Abyss. You wrote that it is difficult to recall a more complete public sector failure than this. So we do have some listeners outside of the country. Can you just set this up for us? What exactly is going on here? And it's often referred to a link tax. How accurate is that? I think that's very accurate. What, what's happened is the government has decided that uh, it has agreed with newspapers and other other news organizations who were very late to the to the argument that uh, Facebook and Google should be compensating them for carrying links to their website and stories on that website, even though that's in the case of Facebook. In the case of Google, it's for linking through their search through the through their search engine. And the, the the problem, you know, I mean, the, we can de- we can debate the premise that they actually should be or shouldn't be, um, but let's separate that for the moment, and you deal with deal with the with the linkage. The problem is once you once you put a price on a link, you kind of kill the. Uh, I don't want to use this is a word that others have used, but you know, there's, there's the argument is that you're kind of killing the internet. Right? The internet is all about links. In 2011, in 2011, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that a link is just a link. It doesn't have an economic value. Um, the content that you get once you get to when once you make the linkage does. But this confused the the, the issue entirely. So if, uh, the way Meta and Google were looking at it was all they could hear was a uh, you know the the kaching 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 of a cash register going every time somebody posted a link and they have no control over how many links are posted so the you could imagine somebody sitting in the Toronto Stars uh, offices just posting one link after another right um and to whatever it was so that was that was a huge problem with the structure and the other part with it was even had they done that, they never put a cap on the on the what the cost would be to the uh, to, to the tech giants, as they call them, uh, to big tech. So when Meta and Google, no matter how much money you have, no rational business operator is ever going to agree to a scheme in which your costs are unlimited. You might have something in in mind, like it's going to. Oh, this is not going to cost us any more than a billion, or it's not going to cost us any more than fifty million. But you have to know. No, no executive in any company, even a mom and pop, you know, convenience store, is going to agree with a business deal or comply with 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 a, with a law that exposes them to unlimited expense, particularly for the these global companies. When, as uh, you know, our heritage minister Pablo Rodriguez has said, the world is watching. And I kept trying to write that and say, that's the problem, Pablo. The world is watching, right? So if you get you know four hundred million out of these guys in Canada, which is uh, you know a pretty active social media market, but nevertheless, it's less than two percent of of the world population. You know, all of a sudden, that becomes. Five or six billion, if five hundred million in Canada becomes six or seven billion in the U.S., becomes I don't know how many billion in in India and that sort of stuff, and all of a sudden that seventy billion dollar a year profit you're returning disappears. So shareholder value and all that—that's why executives exist—is to protect shareholder value, and that's what they ended up doing. 
And the, and the government here has framed this as as a real fight against big tech bullying. We we saw our prime minister Justin Trudeau compare this to uh, World War II. Um, Pablo Rodriguez has begun to backpedal and back off. You you recently penned a piece saying that this retreat uh, is too late and and maybe also too little. Um, but let's talk a little bit about another aspect of the bill that doesn't get enough attention, which is that the bill will rely on the CRTC to determine which outlets are eligible for payments. Here's a line from a recent Globe and Mail editorial board op-ed on this. Bluntly, C-18 opens the door for the CRTC to decide if newsrooms are abiding by its view of proper journalistic standards of conduct and penalize those who fail that test. Even the mere prospect of such intervention is a problem, not just for newsrooms, but ultimately for all Canadians. Do you think the CRTC is equipped to make value judgments on what Canadian journalism is worthy and what is not? No. And I think that's almost through the CRTC's own admission. The Broadcasting Act does give it the power, and C-18 uh, does this as well, to be the the final judge on what content is good and what it isn't. The Broadcasting Act says that the system must be of good standard. Now, in order to avoid having to have these judgments made by the nine commissioners who are, you know, cabinet appointees on the CRTC, and I was one of them once. Um, I was one of them actually a couple times. But the the uh, see what the CRTC did well, they, was it was approached by the broadcasting industry and said, how about we police ourselves? We'll come up with uh, some broadcasting standards for conduct. And they created a board called the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council. And it uh, CBC is the only one that doesn't belong to it, by the way. But but uh, and that's in its way to assert its independence. But it then governs complaints. It's sort of like an old fashioned press council and that sort of stuff. But it's its guidelines are approved by the CRTC. So the CRTC does stay in charge of things, but like in describing that, it's sort of like by its own admission, it doesn't feel qualified, like it has the internal expertise to do so. But C-18 then insists that qualified news organizations must have a code of conduct, ethics, uh, practices and principles, whatever, which the CRTC is comfortable with, right? So the Globe and Mail is dead right. I mean, look, if this is a commercial transaction, as C-18 alleges, if this is really just about letting newspapers, you know, negotiate a fair deal with web giants, and I have some sympathy for the for the publishers in terms of the market imbalance, in terms of negotiation power, absolutely, that's, that's, that, that, that's a genuine point. But if that's what this is about, and and these guys should be getting more money from the from big tech. They can spend it however they want. Like it's nobody's business how they spend it. They can spend it on new paint if they want, right? I mean, they can spend it on new furniture. There's lounge in the you know in the in the in in the cafeteria. It whether they spend it on journalism or not is is none of anybody's business. You know, the fact that the CRTC is put in charge of the Globe and Mail's values and standards and practices and how many BIPOC employees it has. And, and you know, I mean, the CBC's tried to do that headcount itself and met great resistance from its employees. You know, getting into all that sort of stuff, which is very much mandated through 
mandate letters through mandate letters to the Department of Heritage is really, you know, to use the technical term, creepy. Uh, another issue here is is the lobbying that has gone on from big media. And I'll be speaking later this week to media historian Mark Edge for uh, Q&A for my weekend column. And his latest book, The Post-Media Effect, talks about the origins of this lobbying to government for intervention from big media in this country, dating back to 2016. What role do you think aggressive lobbying has played in the public policy solutions that government has wound up pursuing to try to remedy our declining media industry? Well, all governments are prone to, you know, being uh, overwhelmed by lobbyists. I mean, I've, I've lived and worked in Ottawa, and you, you see it on a daily basis. People are all at the same parties, that sort of stuff. The casual interactions are there, plus there's the more formal interactions, the opportunities. And the bigger your company is, the more lobbyists you can hire, right? So people are perfectly, and let me get this straight, like people are perfectly entitled to lobby. What happens, though, and I really notice this as a CRTC commissioner, is every time you make you get lobbied by a big guy, you better make sure you find out what the little guys are thinking, right? So you get overwhelmed by News Media Canada that walks in the door and claims that they represent everyone, right? Which just isn't true, right? They, they don't represent the hub. They don't represent the line. They don't represent... Uh, Narwell, they don't represent, you know, all kinds of left, right, center, enviro platforms, uh, you know, all kinds of platforms. But they they guys don't represent out. Lean Out. <laughs> no, they don't represent Lean Out, right? So they go and they make their case and the, and the governments come up with this sort of legislation that is essentially naive. They don't understand the the impact it will have. Or somebody goes in and says, Look, 450 newspapers have died in the last 20 years, right? Nobody shows up and says, hey, hi, I'm one of 230 on new online products that have started up. Nobody comes in and says, yes, the newspaper in Moose Jaw died uh, four or five years ago. But it's okay. Moose Jaw still has four really good online news sources. Nobody is, democracy hasn't died in Moose Jaw, Right. That that's something of what's happening is there's a transition, right? And, and and nobody accounts for the fact that every commercial radio station virtually in the country launched a website. Some of them in small centers in competition with the local newspaper. And that nobody considers the fact that it might have been the radio station's website that killed the newspaper, you know, along with social media and that sort of stuff. Or that we have 700 new news websites in the country all started by radio stations with, you know, and at very little cost because they already had a, you know, a, a news staff and, and news feed, news feed involved. So that's what happens with lobbyists is you only get a part of the story and you end up building legislation built on only one person's story. And that's why I've pushed in the last year and our, we did our recent paper at McDonald Laurier Institute. We really need like a, something like a national news industry policy that takes into, you know, that really understands what's going on, right? So some things are going to die, no question, right? This is what happens. You can't go through a period of disruption like this without some platforms dying. Journalism doesn't have to die, though. It just needs to get a fresh horse. 
And I want to get to some of the recommendations in that paper that you just referenced in a moment. But first, I want to just touch on a recent Angus Reid poll that found 59% of Canadians oppose government funding of private newsrooms, believing that it compromises journalistic independence. Uh, Holly Doan, who's been on this podcast, publisher of Black Locks Reporter, has said she will not take government subsidies. And so has Jen Gerson at the line, also uh, a previous lean out guest, nor will I. Now, you believe that it's crucial to avoid a direct funding connection between the government and newsmakers or news intermediators. Walk us through your thinking on that. Well, it's really not about what I think or what you think um, or what publishers think or what broadcasters think. It's about what the public thinks. And that that poll really illustrates that. Like I've, you know, I've 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 heard reporters say, "Hey, you know, that's not going to compromise me. I'm still going to do my job," and I believe them, right? But other people don't. <laughs> and no matter how much you say that, and you know, I've had this discussion with the, you know more than a couple of academics who are saying, "Come on." There's no way that government funding, you know, can influence newsrooms and that sort of stuff. And I'm like, I spent 30 years working in newsrooms. I'm sorry. I know how it works. It's not as pretty as people like to think it is. It's not as ugly as people might assume from a comment like that. But there is influence. People, you know, executives do keep an eye over their shoulder. They do, you know, you do casually self-censor you move stories in a different direction all of these things occur they don't occur on a daily basis and they don't occur in overt ways but but what gets rewarded is what gets done right um and people aren't going to put the sustainability again shareholder value and interest at at risk um they will try to do it in ways that don't you know corrupt a newsroom and that sort of stuff but th- there's no question again that you know, even if you are as 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 pure as a driven snow, if the public doesn't, if the public suspects that you might even suspects that you might not be, it it undermines your entire business platform. Mm. And also, um, just another point on that Angus Reid poll that I just cited: fifty-seven percent of Canadians say that the consolidation of our media should be discouraged to encourage competition. Um, as you point out in your McDonald Laurier report, for instance, post media effectively controls ninety percent of the nation's daily and weekly newspapers. And you have argued strongly in favor of pluralism in media ownership. How, what impact does heavy consolidation have here? Well, I mean, in terms of in in, in terms of uh, the post media ownership, and you could look at the Hollinger ownership before that, and even some of the southern structures. I mean, some of this goes back to the Kent Commission in the in the nineteen eighties when you know uh, newspapers were simultaneously closed down and bought and that sort of stuff, and and it became more consolidated. A lot of that has to do with foreign ownership restrictions. Uh, there have been some good arguments made on that, not. Just by myself, but by by others in the media industry, if you restrict the number of potential buyers for an entity, you're going to lower the price. And if you lower the price, that makes it possible for people to buy more than one, two, three, four, five. And the next thing you know, people say, "Wow, this is more efficient. My costs are way lower if I just centralize all this." Right. So all of a sudden, all your copy editors are working in Hamilton deciding what headlines go in the Edmonton Journal or the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. People who have never been to Edmonton 
or or Saskatoon are copy editing the stories and 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 it doesn't work. It's sickly. It saves money. It's cost efficient and that sort of stuff. But Canada's an incredibly large country, and it's very diverse in its regions. You know, as I explained to somebody once when I was I explained this to an Englishman once when I was in at a meeting in Washington, I said. He said, well, you know, Calgary and Ottawa, how far is that apart? And I said, funny you should ask. I've looked it up. And it's actually the distance between Calgary and Ottawa is about 180 kilometers further than the difference between London and Moscow. So all of Europe can fit in between, right? So that gives you some of the size and the idea that people think a bunch of guys sitting in Toronto or Montreal, or it could be Winnipeg, or it could be Vancouver, deciding what people in Halifax and then Baker Lake and Edmonton and Saskatoon should be reading is absurd. It just, it downgrades the product to the point where today, like Jen Gerson calls them zombie newspapers, and she's not wrong. They, you know, I read something the other day that said from a, uh, one of the news media candidates, imagine if Calgary, Edmonton, Regina, Saskatoon, Vancouver were all to lose their daily newspapers simultaneously. And I read it and thought, they already have. They already, I mean, the impact now would be what, you know? So once you depreciate an asset to a certain point, it's very hard to argue that it has a value that you need to retain. And that's really our competition policies in Canada are very, very weak. And, uh, and and we create duopolies all over the place. And we seem to think of it as some sort of cultural identifier. Well, let's spend a few moments on where we go from here. So you did recently author a national news media policy paper for McDonald Laurier calling for this national news strategy and, and offering some recommendations. What do you see as the path to sustainability for Canadian media in sort of a broad strokes? And then we'll drill down on a few of your recommendations. The path to sustainability is only going to be found through opening the gate and letting innovation and entrepreneurship run wild. Um, I don't think anybody has a complete answer at this stage. I think there are some models emerging that appear to be, you know, sustainable answers. Like in, in Britain, the Daily Telegraph is is making good money. It's not just surviving, it's making money. The Guardian started turning a profit again after years of, of not doing so, primarily based on a voluntary subscription model or donation model. Uh, there's uh, the Times, the Times in London's doing the same. And these are, the, the Globe and Mail, you know, Philip Crawley was at the, at the Senate hearings and noted that, you know, they have 330,000 subscriptions and their business model is being able to shift from the old model in which 70% of your revenue was classified in display advertising to now it's 70% subscription revenue. And I mean, if you can get 300,000 subscriptions at 350 bucks a piece a year, that's a hundred million dollars, right? That's a sustainable, I think, revenue model. It's not rich by any means for for something of of of, uh, of of that ambition, but it's uh, certainly you can run a pretty good newsroom, <laughs> um, an operation overall on a hundred million bucks. Plus, if that's only seventy percent, you're talking, you know, another thirty forty million. You're building a reasonable platform. The problem is with most of us is most of the papers, as I was articulating with the previous question, is that 
they've depreciated the, the, the content to the point where nobody's going to buy the subscription model. Anyway, you need to take all those things into account. You need to have a good long look at it. You need to open those doors to innovation. And we suggested in the paper that here's some ideas to start with, right? You really need to get the end. You really need to, to do some certain things. One of them, it was, uh, uh, well, I'll go into them one by one if, as, as you wish. Wonderful. Well, let, let's start with one that I wanted to kind of drill down on, which is extending tax credits for subscriptions. One of the things that I worry about with this idea is just that people's disposable income is not in a good place right now. So if you think about Toronto, median individual income in Toronto, where I live is about $40,000 a year. The average rent for a one-bedroom apartment is about $2,500 a month. So if people's budgets are stretched really thin and they have little disposable income to spend on subscriptions, how do we keep reliable news from becoming like a luxury item? Well, that's what the CBC is for. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the tricky parts about the subscription model is that there's all there's still going to be people out there giving it away for free, right? And and in this in, in today's world, you know, people talk about that. Well, we're running out of we're not getting news. I mean, certainly your local city council or town council or municipal council isn't getting covered the way it used to, and school boards are running amok because nobody's giving them any coverage. People discover sort of two years later what they've done when there's controversy about it. And that's and that sort of thing. But there's generally more news out there for free than at any point in human history. So I don't think that I mean, while the the cost concern is real, uh, people should still be able to probably go to a library and that would have a subscription mm-hmm. and read there the way they the way they used to when there was just a printed newspaper and you had to buy one. Uh, I would suggest that there should be sort of I guess what you would call single copy sales, where if there was a story of great importance to you of which you were aware that day, you'd be able to just uh, buy one online for a buck or buy a subscription for that week for five bucks or or something like that to create different models. But the broadcasters will likely still be, I mean, they're repurposing their content to a certain extent. CPC and CTV increasingly are sort of creating online newspapers, but I don't see any sign of them charging subscriptions for it because they're sort of double selling. So I don't, I'm not that worried about it. In other words, I mean, I think the average person will be okay. There'll be lots of news available. And I think if everything settled down and you had good aggregators, like you should be able to, for a very modest price, you know, buy Apple, something like Apple News, where you could, could get a good overview. In terms of the CBC, so you and I recently sat on a panel together on the future of the CBC for McDonald Laurier, and uh, your policy paper argues for reform of the public broadcaster. What are a few of the key points of reform that you'd like to see there? The really key point is it has to get out of the advertising business. The government right now, I mean, the CBC is is not a public broadcaster. It's a it's it's in, in its own words. I, they told this to in the panel I was sitting on it. A TRTC hearing. They're a publicly funded commercial broadcaster, right? And there's no other industry in the country in which this would be tolerated, right? Imagine, you know, whether it was the 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 restaurant industry where there was a, you know, a, a government restaurant chain that got a 1.2 billion dollar annual subsidy and then went out and competed against every other 
Denny's and White Spot in, in, in the country. Nobody would put up with that. If it was an auto company or anything, uh, you know, if you're going to subsidize, you have to subsidize evenly or not at all. Or, and the easiest thing in this case is just to get the CBC out of the advertising business, which should free up $400 million in advertising that they're consuming every year right now uh, for others to compete with. It could, should allow others, such as the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, et cetera, to actually increase their rates a little bit. Because if you have less competition, you're going to, that's, that's what's going to happen. So advertising, their, their revenue would, would be healthier. And it also, there's a number of other things that have to do with their content. They should be pared down to, I think, just a, a, a rather, I, I think, impressive, but nevertheless functional number of, you know, one radio station in each language and one up north in each language, or network in, in each language, and uh, same with uh, television, and then one uh, one new, one all news network in, in each language, and get rid of all the other clutter, all your other commercial organizations. That I don't think anything else, frankly, works unless you do that. I think that's fundamental. You can't. You have to have a level playing field for journalism industry to move forward. And right now, it simply isn't. Um, CBC can still be there. I think there's, you know, need for a public broadcaster in the country. I think they're they're of great value, but they can't be, you know, this sort of I called them Franken streamers, where they're you know they're commercial and they're and they're not. And it's, they seem to sort of take on that identity, whichever identity suits at the time. So that has to happen. And what kind of changes would you like to see done to the CRTC? To the CRTC? Oh, well, the CRTC's big, the big issue with the CRTC, and this particularly now with C18 sort of bringing newspapers into its scope, is when it does economic reviews of markets, like when it decides to do licensing, if it's a, let's pick, uh, I don't know, Sudbury, just off the top of our head. Somebody wants a new license, you know, has a, it makes an application for a new license in Sudbury. Uh, CRTC does an, uh, an analysis of the market, whether it's sustainable, you know, whether the market can sustain another station. But it never includes anything other than its licensed broadcasters. So it'll decide how many local TV stations there are and how many local radio stations there are. But it hasn't historically looked at, oh, and there's an online, you know, there's a, an online entertainment platform and there's an online news platform. Oh, and there's two newspapers, right? So it it, it just, it, it actually sees its world and that's all it sees, right? So if you're going to have a sustainable media environment and having the CRTC run around doing these market analysis and handing out new licenses for broadcasters or retracting old ones, it should actually be looking at the entire news ecosystem, uh, which it which it hasn't in the past. And and I think that's probably produced some over licensing. So you have uh and then every time they license, they tell the the guy that he has to do news. Well that might make sense if you're in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's two perfectly. Maybe there's a perfectly good newspaper in Humboldt, and you never even had to make that guy do it. If he wants to do it, great, right? But it, you don't have to make him do it. Or if you look at markets like Toronto and Vancouver, where they're really out of spectrum, so there's no more stations. You could like forty 
licensed stations, every one of whom has to do news. And all you end up with with that is 40 poorly staffed newsrooms. Apart from your, you know, your all news stations, there's always, you know, in those markets, there's one of those. But if, if, if they just have to do news as a regulatory obligation, you've got, you know, a daily staff of one at each one of these stations. They all go to the same news conferences. They all get the same press releases. There's no real, there's no time, you know, bless their hearts. There's no time for any enterprise work. All you're doing is getting the same stuff repeated. And so it's not really adding value to the news ecosystem. So I'd like them to be aware of the fact that they need to be helpful. And just lastly, Peter, to close, I want to ask you a big picture question, which is about public trust. We know that public trust in media in Canada is at its lowest point in seven years. Something I hear from readers all the time is this problem of public trust. What do you think caused this crisis in public trust? And how, given all the challenges you've just described, how do we begin to repair that trust? Well, I think social media activity has something to do with it. Uh, you know, back in the day, the, the only way people could protest to a broadcaster or a, or, or a newspaper would be to phone them up, you know, write them letters. Uh, if you did something horrible, you could get hundreds of phone calls in a day. I've had that happen at, at newspapers and that. And, you know, you hear it and you can defend yourself to the teeth, but you hear it and you need and you need to respond. I, I think what happened is uh, with social media to a certain extent, I, th I think a lot of journalists were encouraged to have high Twitter profiles and, and social media profiles to sort of drive traffic to their websites and that sort of stuff. And for columnists, you know, say the Andrew Coins of this world and that sort of stuff, that that's fine. I mean, that's that's what you're selling is hot takes and 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 that sort of stuff. And you got to have a pretty thick skin um, if you're going to wander out into that. But for the average journalist to be on social media, blabbing and blaring about their about their their personal views on things is incredibly destructive. That's one of the first things. I mean, I was taught you know, sort of as a as a young journalist is like, you know, you can you can believe whatever you want, but your work has to be balanced and fair and accurate and all that sort of stuff. And be very careful about what you say in public. If you're out on, on Friday night with uh, with 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 friends and that sort of stuff, trusted friends, that's kind of one thing. But still, be careful. I mean, I for, for years and years, I I never took out a political party membership. Nobody would have known. But, you know, as I, just as a journalist, I thought it was wrong. The only one I ever bought, I bought in like 2005 in order to get tickets to see Stephen Harper speak at the Stampede dinner because I thought it would be kind of cool to see a prime minister from Calgary speak. And that took me years to get them off my tail after that, my one year, my one year membership. But anyway, people were really careful and people have been much too casual and much too cavalier about about putting their own opinions out there. And I've seen some more restraint in the past year or so. So I think that seems to be, you know, uh, sinking in that, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me isn't really the best way to go about things. Post your work. The Globe and Mail is pretty good about it. The Toronto Star can generally be pretty good about it. Having internal controls. Post your work and uh, shut up. Let your work <laughs> speak for and, and And that's, I mean, that's a start because... You know, trust is is one of those pieces of social capital. Francis Fukuyama writes about that, you know, and we all know that from our personal relationships, 
right, in life and our professional relationships, it's one of those things that's once destroyed. It's really, really difficult to rebuild. And sometimes you can't. So our news industry, our journalism industry depends way more than ad- it depends on advertising. It depends on trust. And even the advertising, you you don't get advertising unless you're a trusted source. As people trust the advertising, you're at, your trust rubs off on the advertisers. They always like that. But I think we're in a real pickle right now with that one. Hmm. Well, Peter, I really appreciate you thinking so deeply through the issues in the media and your research and your writing and, and all of your work to try to help us find a way out of this mess. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on today. It's very kind of you. Hopefully we can uh, you know, get some discussions going about moving things forward. Thanks a lot. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Substack.com.